help us, I pray, and we ask together in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. If you haven't yet turned to Genesis 9, please do so, and we'll be there in this short little passage this morning, finishing another smaller section of the book of Genesis. Uh, This section started back in Genesis chapter 6, verse 9, where it says, these are the generations of Noah. Uh, Each of these little sections in Genesis start with that little phrase, that Hebrew word toledot. And that's where this section started, and this section will end in the last verse that Caleb read for us in verse 29. Another new section will start in 10.1. These are the generations, the toledot of the sons of Noah. And it'll begin to describe it. So we're finishing this last section. And up to this point, Noah has been the man. I mean, when you're looking at his character and his, the description that we see of Noah, we're all thinking, I want to be like Noah. Uh, this man was full of grace. This man was righteous, blameless. He walked with God. He did everything that God said. And yet this passage this morning is going to leave something to be desired. I don't know about you. Uh, I imagine you are like me in that there have been people in our lives who we've looked up to. And, and we thought they were like Noah, Genesis, uh, you know, up to Genesis chapter 9, verse 16. We just saw them in such great light. We loved them. We appreciated them. Uh, whether that was a a mother, a father, a, a preacher, a Sunday school teacher, maybe, maybe someone who you read their books or something like that, and you looked up to them for so long, and then at a certain point in their life, maybe even a point after their light, life, something came to the light that didn't paint them in such a good picture. And you wonder, what, what do I do? What do I do with this now? How am I to respond to this sin in this person's life that I so loved and who seemed to have done so much good? Good for me, good for others. I've experienced this personally where a pastoral friend and mentor at one point in his life and our time together left the church, left the Lord left the family that the Lord had given him? How do we respond in situations? Do we leave what we know to be true up to that point? Do we leave those things that that we've held fast to? Or or maybe you, uh, we've seen them in the news, in at least the Christian news of uh, people like Ravi Zacharias, who has debated the Christian faith well for years, and yet, come to find out, there has been serious, egregious sin in his life. How are we supposed to respond to sin? I I have a book that some of us have read together uh, in in pastoral ministry called Dangerous Calling, uh, written by Paul David Tripp. On the back of the book, there are five endorsements, three of which have had such a significant moral failure that they're not in pastoral ministry 
anymore, and one of them publicly uh, denied the faith any longer. How are we supposed to respond to, to sin? Christians who sin, Christians who fall into sin, how, how are we supposed to fight in our faith against sin? This passage is going to help us deal with those questions. And I think it'll be helpful for us this morning. That's why I've titled it Falling from Grace. We understand what that phrase means that we have, especially as Christians, we enjoy that. We, we understand what that means. We just sang a song uh, about how the grace of God amazes us. And so we know and understand the grace of God as, as Christians. But even if you're not a Christian, you understand what that phrase means. Falling from grace. Falling from a, a place that you don't deserve back to where maybe you do deserve. And, and Noah was one who also fell from grace. And, and, and yet we need to take heed I need to listen to Paul's words from 1 Corinthians 10, 12, where he says, Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. And, and not think, well, yeah, that was Noah, but I wouldn't do that. That was that person, but you know what? I'm, I'm better than that. I'm stronger than that. I, I'm not, that's not going to happen to me. Not in my marriage. Not, not in my relationship with the Lord. That's not going to happen to me. Paul, one who we as a church even looked at this morning, was saved by grace through faith from such an awful past. He says, therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. We want to, at the end of our life, be able to say like Paul, that I've fought the good fight, I've finished the race, I have kept the faith. Noah was one who had fallen from grace. In fact, if you flip back in your Bibles to Noah, uh, Noah to Noah chapter 6, no, Genesis chapter 6, where we see Noah um, show up for the uh, really first description of him. In chapter 6, verse 8, it says, but Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Noah found grace. That's the Hebrew word for grace. Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. He had been shown the grace of God, chosen by God and saved by God. And in that moment, he was made righteous by faith, uh, made blameless by faith. He did everything that the Lord told him to do because he believed in the Lord. And, and so Noah was one who had found grace very, uh, very clearly. He did everything that the Lord told him to do in building the ark. When the Lord said to get in the ark, he obeyed him then. He got on the ark. He uh, was patient until the Lord called him out of the ark and saved him in those moments. The first thing Noah did after he got out of the ark was to build an altar and worship the Lord. So he understood grace. He understood what it meant to be saved by God. But he got lazy. He got sloppy in an aspect of, of his life and his faith. And, and this section of the Chronicles of Noah tell us that Noah was not perfect. And that the world that he was living in was very much like the world Adam was living in after he had sinned. 
We'll see that as we begin to look through this. It starts with the sons of Noah who went forth from the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And then we get a little parentheses there. Moses is getting us ready for something that's coming later in this story. Ham was the father of Canaan. Now, I didn't see any of you kind of like lean in in that moment, sit up on the edge of your seats. But when Moses would have read that to the Israelites who were on the edge of Canaan and had just sent spies into Canaan to see and had come back and said, it is an amazing land, but they're giants. I mean, look at the grapes we got. These are amazing. The wine that we could make there. But uh, no way. There's no way we can take this. Think about those people hearing this passage saying, Ham was the father of Canaan. Cana what? That's what they're thinking. They're thinking, oh, that these are the guys. This is where they come from. This is why they're so bad. They're leaning in in this moment. They're they're thinking, okay, this is going to show us why they're so wicked, why they're so evil. Why we are going to have such a hard time against them. Why we need to trust the Lord when the Lord sends us into them. That's just one of a few little hints that Moses is getting his people ready for, for what's to be described. These three were the sons of Noah, and from these the people of the whole earth were dispersed, or the, the whole earth were populated. Moses is getting us ready for Genesis 10. Genesis 11, where he will describe the families that are to to come, uh, to describe a moment in time where they're all dispersed and scattered around the world. We'll get to that in the coming weeks. But in verse 20, if you're taking notes this morning, I want you to note first to hear Noah's sin. Noah's sin, in verse 20, is described as this. Noah began to be a man of the soil... And he planted a vineyard. He drank of the wine and became drunk and lay uncovered in his tent. Noah took up the, the job of his great-great-great-great-great-great-grandfather, Cain. We, we remember Cain was a worker of the ground while his brother Abel was one who took care of livestock and Here, when Noah gets off, uh, there's not a ton of livestock to take care of, though they probably are reproducing in in this season. But he begins to work the ground, and he takes some of those grape seeds that he had saved for a year on the ark, and he begins to plant a vineyard uh, intentionally. Uh, This isn't an accidental act that Noah happened to just plant a vineyard. One just kind of grew up, and he just happened to take some grapes, just happened to crush them and make some grape juice, and just happened to store them for a while in an animal skin and allow them to ferment to the point where they became alcoholic and and able to make Wow, this wasn't just an accident. This was intentional and took years upon years upon years of intentionality of Noah to do. And so let's not just gloss over this and say this was an accident on Noah's part. He just slipped into sin. It wasn't his fault. No, this was 
a lack of intentionality fighting against sin, a, a, a laziness in, in this aspect uh, of his life. He, he did these things intentionally. And, and there, when it describes this, we are to think back to the, the world in which Adam lived after the fall. Because there it describes Noah of not eating of fruit, but drinking of fruit like Adam and Eve. And when he did drink of this fruit, he was found naked like Adam and Eve were naked. Moses is trying to get us to realize that even though God saved Noah and his wife and his sons and his sons' wives through the flood and he destroyed all all the wickedness that was on the earth, once they got out, it was still a sinful, broken world. And and sin brings shame. We have to intentionally fight against it rather than allow it to fester in our lives. And Noah, the world that Noah lives is very similar to the world that, that Adam and Eve experienced after their fall in Genesis Chapter 3, what a fall from grace Noah is being described here. This is the first bad thing mentioned about him. And if that were the the worst thing mentioned about him and the worst thing about you, you'd think, I'm doing pretty good. I mean, that's not not as bad as what's about to be said. Or just just wait until some of the other things happen that are described of other people. I mean, Noah's still in pretty good character, but we're not comparing ourselves to other people. We're comparing ourselves to the Lord, who's holy and righteous and perfect. And, and when we realize that none of us compare, we recognize how much we need God's grace, God's mercy, God's salvation. This little short section, this aspect of the story describing Noah's sin here is is urging all of us, as much as we have experienced the grace of God, as many years as we have gone on finding freedom from sin and enjoying God's blessing, growing in sanctification, being involved in the church, we have to fight temptation. We have to fight our old self to keep from sinning. Uh, Whether you're 10 or 100 or 650, uh, you have to be able to fight against this. There's no age that we get to where we're like, "Ah, finally, I've made it. This is no longer a temptation for me. I don't have to fight against that. Because slowly but surely, the world, our own sinfulness, Satan, will tempt us to fall into sin. And unless we have been fighting against it with God's word, in the power of the spirit, with the help of others in the church, we're going to find ourselves in the same place Noah was. So hear me when I say to you, don't compare your sin to anybody else. Compare it to the Lord and realize how uh, egregious your sin is against the Lord, just like Noah's was. And fight, fight against the sin that you have. The Bible 
this week as I was looking up all of these verses, I'm not going to quote them to you, but over and over in the New Testament, it says we're to flee from sin, resist sin, endure temptation, abstain from sin, confess sin, put, death to, put sin to death. Nowhere does it say to treat sin lightly, to dance around it, to hold it loosely. It says to kill it, to run from it. As soon as Noah realized that the vineyard he was planting, he might be tempted to use it to drink and to become drunk, should have chopped the roots out of all of the the vines, burned them all so there would be no seeds left to be tempted later on to be doing so. That's how we're to treat that that type of thing. Let me ask you, what, what sin are you playing lightly with, Christian? After all of these years of knowing the grace of God, is there any aspect of your life that you're treating lightly? Any sin against the Lord that you're holding loosely and just playing with and toying with? I want to encourage you to dive deeper into the grace of God that you might hate your sin even more and want to run from it, flee from it, abstain from it, and put it to death in your life. Let's not allow this to become true of us later in our life. And if we want that to be the case, we're going to need the word. We're going to need the help of the spirit. We're going to need the help of one another. And the Bible says to not only confess our sins to the Lord, but to confess our sins to one another. Because he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. But in confession of sin to one another we find that one another are able to help us in that. So fight. Fight against it rather than than growing it here on the side. That's Noah's sin, but the Bible goes on to describe Ham's sin. Ham's sin is described in verse 22. It says, in Ham, again, here's that little parenthetical phrase, the father of Canaan. So if the Israelites were kind of moved up a little bit in the edge of their seat at the first moment. Now they kind of bumped up again, listening even closer to to where these Canaanites came from that they have been staring down. And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. Ham described here as seeing the nakedness of his father. doesn't say really anything else uh, other than that. And yet that, that's enough right then and there. Some have used other similar phrases later on in the Bible to say that Ham did more than simply see the nakedness of his father. But but in seeing the nakedness of his father defiled his father in, in some form or fashion. The text doesn't lend itself to, to, to say that's what he did. But seeing the nakedness of his father because of his father's sin, and then telling others about that sin is enough to... Uh, in be able to take what Noah is about to give him and what the Lord is going to give him later on in this story. That's enough. 
Ham took pleasure in seeing his father's nakedness as a result of his sinfulness, exposed it to his brothers. And so in a form or fashion, he was gossiping about the sin of others, laughing about it, making light of it, enjoying it, celebrating it, rather than mourning over the sin of his father. And helping his father to prevent him from falling into this sin again. Ham is running outside. He's the first to maybe see it, and he wants to be the first one to tell about it. <laughs> We're all tempted to do this, aren't we? We find out about something, and we can't wait to tell someone else. And unfortunately, that's often negative things about someone else. Uh, about something that's happened to them, something that they've done that would embarrass them. Even as Christians, we are tempted to gossip and just want to be the first person to, to do that. And we have all our own special ways of doing it. We may not run out of the tent and say, uh, you know, to, to our brothers, guess what dad did? You know, but we might, so, I mean, you heard anything about Susie this week? Sorry, I, I don't think there's any Susie fans. Okay, but you know, like, sorry, you know what this person's done this week? Uh, no, I, I haven't heard anything. Oh, yeah, I, I mean, I don't know if what I heard was true, you know, and we just begin to slide into it, and we begin to boast in what someone else has done, someone else has said, what something else that has happened to another person. We love to, to be that because, because why? Because we want to build ourselves up. There is a pride in and of ourselves that we want to look better than the other, and we want to shame that, that other person. Same thing that was happening in the garden. E Eve wasn't satisfied with being made in the image of God. She was tempted in, in thinking that, uh, that she would become like God in that moment. Ham is wanting to be better than his dad, wanting to, uh, as the youngest son, wanting to expose the sin of his father and, and kind of take the place uh, of, of him in that moment. What, what do you, have you been gossiping? Have you been sinning by treating sin lightly, sharing other people's sin, laughing about it? making light of it, when you watch TV and sin is happening on those shows or on those movies or sin is being celebrated on social media, do you, are you, are you still watching? Are you still enjoying it, still laughing about it, pointing it out to other people, telling them that they should watch it and laugh about it and enjoy it? We, we just need to realize how serious that is. That's not just sin. That, that's enjoying the sin of others. And, and it goes a whole nother step. Noah fell into sin, the sin of drunk. Ham is celebrating the sin of his father. And, and it ought not be. It ought not be of God's people, especially. When Moses's generation, when, when he would have been reading this story again out loud to that generation wandering in the wilderness, Noah didn't have the law. 
He didn't have the Ten Commandments. He didn't have the Fifth Commandment that says you ought to honor your father and mother. But the generation uh, of Moses in the wilderness, they had the law. Noah didn't have that at that point. Moses had it. So when he's reading this out loud, and they, he hear, they hear that Ham did this to his father, they're thinking, broke number five. That is not honoring your father and mother in that moment. Deuteronomy chapter 27, verse 16, goes beyond just commanding honor at father and mother. But it says, Cursed be anyone who dishonors his father and his mother. And all the people shall say, Amen. And so they would have heard these things. They would have known these things to be true. They knew how serious of an, uh, of an offense this is. And so kids, here you go. I'm going to let you in on something. Your parents are sinners. Do you know that? Uh, you may not know. You probably look at us and think, wow, they're just amazing. They've never done anything wrong. I just hold them in this great light, but I need you to know something. They are sinful just like Noah. And yet, even in those moments, there are there is a way to honor your mother and your father. When they explode in anger at another sibling, uh, because they've done something wrong. It is not your place to run upstairs and to go tell the other brothers and sisters, do you know what mom just said? Do you know what dad did? Oh my goodness. And start celebrating the, the sin of the other sibling and the reaction of the parent. Right? We are to honor our father and mother, to know that they're just as sinful as you are, child, and are in need of, God's grace just as much as you are. And yet there's a way to honor them, to, to respect them, and to help them not to, to sin in the future. Again, Noah's world is much, like, is much like Adam's world after the fall, and we see it in those, in those pages, in those scriptures. So we see Noah's sin, we've seen Ham's sin, but now we're going to see... Shem and Japheth's response to sin. And this is important. When we see that Ham, his response to sin was his own sinfulness, we see quite uh, a different thing in verse 23. And notice that Shem and Japheth get a description longer than Noah's sin, longer than Ham's sin. Their response, their, their godly response to sin is described in more detail than any of the actions thus far. In verse 23, Then Shem and Japheth took a garment, laid it on both of their shoulders, and walked backward and covered the nakedness of their father. And Moses wants you to know that their faces were turned backward, and they did not see their father's nakedness. Moses goes to great lengths to be able to make sure that you and I know when we're reading this and that Moses' generation wandering in the wilderness about to enter the promised land know that Shem and Japheth worked really hard to 
cover the nakedness of their father and didn't look upon the nakedness of their father. This was their response to sin. Their response to sin, rather than going and gossiping about it and and telling about it and laughing about it and spreading it about, was to enter in and and to cover the nakedness of their father, to to honor him in that way. And when when I say cover, I don't mean hide. It's known already. Uh, I'm not talking about hiding sin and and covering it up with a blanket so that no one else knows and that we can make sure Noah looks looks all pretty. One of the things I love about the Bible is that it's just honest and true. If we wanted the Bible to be more believable, maybe we would leave out this section of Genesis about Noah's life. and, And we would have this better portrayal of who Noah was, but... No, it's included in here to give us a more real picture of these things. And so they're not covering his nakedness uh, to, to hide it and to make sure that their wives don't, his wife doesn't know about it. Their kids, grandkids don't know that grandpa, you know, drank too much this weekend and lay uncovered in the tent. It's probably known. His sons know about it, and yet they're honoring their father in, in this way, covering the nakedness uh, of their father. And think about the intentionality that they had to go through to do this. They had to conspire. Conspire is the wrong word. They had to work together to come up with a plan to say, hey, Ham told us what had happened. You know, th- let's go in there. Let's grab this blanket together. Let's, let's walk in. Let's both hold it, you know, one on one side, one on the other. We'll walk backwards. Make sure you... Uh, you walk backwards, don't trip, you know, over this, that, or the other. We're going to cover him up, and then we're going to walk back out so that we don't see him. When he wakes up, we'll, we'll talk with Dad uh, then, but, but now's not the time. You just think about the planning that they had to go through to be able to, to do this, of covering their father and helping protect the, the honor uh, of their father. What's your response to sin? When you see another brother or sister in Christ, when you see your mom or your dad, when you see your siblings, when you see a friend fall short of the glory of God, fall from grace, fall into sin, are you wanting to respond to sin like Ham and sin yourself by gossiping about it? Or are you wanting to respond to sin by thinking, how can I help this person who's fallen from grace for this moment to help them have their sin covered and, and to help them not sin again. How, how are you responding to sin in that, in that moment? When, church members, when we look out at one another on Sunday mornings and at our members meeting, we see or we know something or, or they've told us something How are we responding in that moment? Are we thinking intentionally, giving time to thinking, how can I help this brother? How can I help this sister? So that they don't find their sinfulness uncovered again. How can I help them in in that moment? That's how we are to respond to sin. And again, let me just say, when I say cover it, I don't mean covering it to hide it. Like Adam and Eve did back in the beginning. They covered themselves because of their, their shame with fig leaves. And the Lord said, that's not going to do. 
And so the Lord sacrificed an animal and covered them with animal skins. He shed the blood of an animal, the blood of another, to be able to cover their sinfulness. They're walking in and covering him in this moment, covering the nakedness of their father in this moment, not to hide it, but to cover it with grace. We can look forward into the Bible. I've got several verses that I think would be helpful for us when we are to consider how are we to respond to sin. Write write some of these references down. Proverbs 10, verse 12. Hatred stirs up strife, but love covers all offenses. When you think about Ham's response to sin, which became sinful in and of itself, and when you compare that to Shem and Japheth's response to sin, which one was loving? I think it's pretty clear. Uh, Or Proverbs 17, verse 9, whoever covers an offense seeks love but he who repeats a matter separates close friends maybe even family is that not what ham did himself love love covers a multitude of sins peter says in first peter 4 8 above all keep loving one another earnestly why Because love covers a multitude of sins. You know what we need here? We need love. We need love to help us cover sin with the grace of God. Not covering it to hide it. It's already been exposed. It's out. The Lord knows it. Others know it. Let's cover it so that it doesn't happen again. It doesn't creep out again. Only the love of Jesus can truly cleanse us from our sin. But the Bible's making it clear that our love can cover sin and help restore people to the grace of God and to back to faithfulness to God. James chapter 5, verse 20. James, the brother of Jesus, who no doubt had sinned against his brother, Jesus, countless times writes this let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins shem and japheth were covering their father's nakedness in hopes that the father wouldn't go down that road again wouldn't fall drunk and uncover himself again that was their hope in that to cover a multitude of sins moving forward. Or Galatians chapter 6, verse 2, when we're thinking about loving one another and covering one another's sin with the grace of God and helping one another. Paul writes to the church in, in Galatia, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. In a spirit of gentleness. But he says, keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. He tells us to bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. This was the right response to sin. Christian, this is the right response to sin when when your spouse sins against you. When your kids sin against you. 
when your boss sins against you, when your coworkers sin against you, when your neighbors sin against you, when your best friend sins against you. This is the right response to love, to forgive, to cover with the grace of God, to help them, to restore them, to be reconciled to them in those moments. And our passage goes beyond even Shem and Japheth's response to sin, and it gives us Noah's response to sin. And this is where really the passage builds to, to these first words of Noah. Did you realize that? Noah hasn't spoken yet. In all of Genesis, up to this point, Noah has yet to speak. It's been the Lord speaking to Noah and Noah doing. God speaking to Noah and Noah doing. But now Noah's speaking. And so if these are his first and only and last words there that Moses has recorded of this very important man in the early years of the world, they, they're probably pretty important for them then. In uh, Noah's time, for Moses during his time, and for us now during, during our time. And, and it says in verse 24, Noah's response to sin was when he awoke from his wine and knew what his youngest son had done to him, he said, Cursed be Canaan. A servant of servants shall he be to his brothers. And he also said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. May God enlarge Japheth, and let him dwell in the tents of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. Noah woke up the next morning, probably had a headache, uh, was looking for some water, to drink, getting over this uh, drunken stupor at night. He remembers going to bed naked and uncovered, and yet now he's covered up and wonders what happened. He begins asking around, finds out from some of his boys that they had covered him up in, in the night and what what his youngest son Ham had done to him, and and he responds in, in verse 25, 26, and 27 uh, responds to the sin of Ham and, and also responds to the, the response of, of Shem and Japheth. And some have described this as a, a curse and a blessing, but it's, it's not really a, a curse. Uh, as you are probably thinking curse, those of you Harry Potter fans, that like you open a book of spells that Noah had, had back in that day and he took his wand out and recited an incantation and pointed the wand and all of a sudden these things became true of Ham and Shem and, and Japheth. Uh, it's not like that. It, it's more a pronouncement of God's judgment on sin. And God, a pronouncement of God's blessing for faithfulness and obedience. He's not putting a magic spell on them that's going to come true in the future because Noah has that power. He doesn't. He's just declaring what God would already, has already declared 
to be his response to sin. And we already, and in even the names of his sons, we see these things. Uh, Noah almost praying that the names of his sons would come true of them in, in their very life. And so the first one, uh, you would expect when he begins to speak and you hear that cursed be, you would expect him to say, cursed be what? Ham. Ham. You, you would, Ham was the, the one that sinned against his father and was the one that went and tattletailed outside of the tent and gossiped. But here, as Noah was getting us ready for it, Ham was the father of Canaan. Ham was the father of Canaan. Cursed be Canaan. This is where we see that. Why? Why would, why would uh, Noah curse Canaan and, and instead of Ham? Why would he pronounce judgment on Canaan? Well, Ham was the youngest son of Noah. Canaan, according to Genesis chapter 10, is the youngest son of Ham. And like father, like son, we see that Noah sees in his son Ham sinfulness that is compounding in his grandson Canaan. And rather than cursing all of Ham's son and pronouncing judgment on all of them, maybe Canaan participated with his father, or maybe Noah just knew and began to see the same things in Canaan that he saw in his son Ham, that he saw in himself. And he said, you continue down that path and cursed you will be. Don't do that. A, a servant of servants shall he be to his brothers. And so, uh, as we'll see next week, Canaan and his descendants are, are cursed as, as servants. And, and they do end up becoming servants in, in some form uh, and fashion. Um, but unfortunately, some have taken this, this curse that's upon Ham's son and used it to demean uh, people with dark skin specifically. Uh, they've, they've even entitled it the curse of Ham meaning that all of Ham's descendants are cursed to servitude and, and slavery. And therefore, since many of Ham's descendants went on to live in Africa, they held that those with darker skin are cursed to a life of servitude and slavery. And in fact, this idea became even more popular during the height of the Atlantic slave trade, even leading to the Civil War, the curse of Ham. This, they, they thought this is biblical reasoning why we are to bring those with darker skin into slavery. And yet, thoughtful Christians and serious Bible students have always understood and believed that the Bible has always spoken out against racism, man-stealing, abusive servitude. Always. This is such an outrageous reading of Scripture that it almost doesn't even deserve taking time to, to deal with it because you can clearly see the, the faults in this interpretation of Scripture because Ham's other sons 
Yes, they did go to live in Africa, but Ham is not the one cursed. Canaan is the one cursed who doesn't ever live in Africa, nor does he probably have dark skin. He probably looks more like me than he looks like my son Samuel. Not only that, but one of Ham's sons, Egypt, as we see in Genesis 10, ended up being the one enslaving Shem and his descendants in Africa for such a long time. 400 years, according to biblical history. It's just ridiculous. Even beyond that, the word that is translated here as servant is the same word used to describe Abraham's relationship to the Lord just a couple chapters later in Genesis 18, verse 3. The same word that's used to describe um, Esau's relationship to Jacob later in Genesis 27. And so we need to condemn that interpretation uh, because of its false understanding and and misreading uh, of this. That's not what how that was to be interpreted. Again, we need to take the first audience into consideration and realize that when Moses is reading this, again, to those, that younger generation that's about to go into the promised land, those that, to go in and to destroy all the Canaanites that live in the promised land because of their false worship and false belief and sinful actions and disobedience against the Lord, they're hearing that they are to be driven out and that this was a, a promise, a, a curse on them, a pronouncement of God's judgment on them because of their sinfulness from the very beginning. We're to see the fulfillment of that happen and come to fruition in the promised land being delivered over to the Israelites who happen to be the descendants of Shem. So that's the response of Noah to the sin of Ham, specifically this judgment on Canaan, who will eventually become servants of Israel in the promised land. But he goes on and he responds not only to the sin of Ham, he responds to the righteousness of Shem and Japheth in verse 26. And there he says, Blessed be the Lord. Now, earlier, we expected it to say, cursed be Ham, but it actually said, cursed be Canaan. Here, we expect it to say, blessed be Shem and Japheth, but it doesn't. What does it say? Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and eventually the God of Japheth. Noah is blessing the Lord. Having woke up in that drunken stupor, recognized his sinfulness, the last thing we read about him is that he is blessing the Lord. It's right to see that and to believe that Noah has repented of his sins and is turning and is blessing the Lord and is now pronouncing blessing not only on the Lord but also on Shem and on Japheth. And it says the Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. It's neat, even in this text, that Moses is recording Noah's words, that Noah uses the personal name 
of God in verse 26, Yahweh. There you'll see, blessed be the Lord, all capital, L-O-R-D there, the personal name of the Lord. And it's interesting that Shem in Hebrew literally means name. His name means name. It'd be like you naming your son name. Going out to the back to call name. Time for lunch. He, his son's name is, is name, and it's, um, it's prophetic in a sense. It, from his name is where we get the word Semitic, referring to the Jews, those who have taken the name of God upon themselves. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. It's a prophetic pronouncement of God's response to their righteous actions in that moment. But it goes even further than that. It says in verse 27, may God enlarge Japheth. Japheth's name literally means enlarge. So God, Noah is pronouncing a, a blessing on Japheth, saying that God may enlarge him and let him dwell in the tents of Shem. And again, like Shem, let Canaan be his servant. And so one might ask, uh, one did ask this week, in fact, why Shem and not Japheth? Why does Japheth have to dwell in the tents of Shem, weren't they both walking in backwards? Weren't they both working together to cover the nakedness of their father? Why Shem and why ought Japheth to dwell in the tents of Shem? Because God is God and he has chosen. And God chose Shem to be the line from which all the nations of the earth would be blessed. Just look forward a, a couple chapters or keep coming back in the next few weeks and we're going to see another beautiful genealogy, Casey, to be able to look through and see some good nuggets in there to be able to see that from Shem comes Abraham. Abraham, who it says of in chapter 12, Verse 1, now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great. Your what great? Your name great. Your Shem great. So that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. God chose Shem to be the line from which Abraham would eventually come. Abraham would be the one God would choose out of all of these people to pronounce his blessing on and make this uh, covenant with. From Abraham uh, would come many more sons and on and on and on all the way to we get to maybe the most famous son in all of the Bible. His name is Jesus. And like I said earlier, if you want to know what the father looks like, you look at the son. Like father, 
like son. And Jesus is no different. Jesus, who came from the line of Shem, who found blessing, and just like Japheth would find blessing when he dwelled in the tents of Shem, so too would all of Jesus' brothers find blessing when they would dwell in the house of Christ. Jesus is not just like Shem, he's better than Shem. We are, to, we are called ourselves to dwell in the house of Christ. And yet this wasn't just true of Jesus' brothers. This was also true for his enemies. Any enemy of Jesus's who repented and believed were called to dwell in the, the house of Christ and, and to be saved by him. It was Jesus who fulfilled the prophecies of Isaiah to be a light to the Gentiles. In fact, when Jesus was born, his parents, Mary and Joseph, took him to the temple and brought him to the hands of Simeon, a righteous man, much like Noah, and Simeon blessed Jesus, much like Noah blesses Shem there. And he says this, he took him into his arms and blessed God, blessed God, and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word, for my eyes have seen your salvation, that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples a light for the revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. Japheth was going to find blessing and salvation in the house of Shem. But in Christ, all the nations of the earth find blessing in the house of the Lord. Jesus came to be the light for all of the nations, for all of the Gentiles, the descendants of Ham, the descendants of Japheth, and the descendants of Shem. He came to be the light and the salvation for, for all of them. He came to be what was a judgment on Canaan. They were judged and were, were to be a servant of servants. And the New Testament tells us that Jesus, the Son of Man, came not to be served, but to serve. And to give his life as a ransom for many. Or we can go even beyond that and say that Jesus not only was a servant, but he took the curse of sin upon himself. In Galatians 3 verse 13, Christ redeemed us from the curse by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree, so that in Christ Jesus... The blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. 2 Corinthians 5.21, for our sake, he made him, God made Jesus to be sin. Noah's sin, Ham's sin. Your sin, my sin, 
God made Jesus to be our sin who knew no sin so that in him, in Christ, we might become the righteousness of God. And so in Christ, who is this better descendant of Shem who brings salvation to all the nations, brothers and enemies, Jesus welcomes us into a new family. This is what Paul writes about in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 6, that by grace, through faith, we can be saved and brought into the tent of Christ. In Ephesians 3, 6, it says, this is the mystery that the Gentiles are fellow heirs. The descendants of Ham are fellow heirs, members of the same body and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus Through the gospel, through the death and resurrection of Jesus, they're welcomed in. Colossians 3.11 says, therefore, here there is not Greek or Jew, circumcised, uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, or free. I would add Hamite, Japhethite, Shemite, but Christ is all and in all. Galatians 3.26, for we... For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. Through faith, we become Abraham's offspring. Even though we, like Noah, have all fallen from grace, we can fall back into grace in Jesus Christ. Only in Christ. If we're going to compare our lives and when we face the Lord in heaven, we stand before him and we're to list out our reasons why the Lord ought to let us into heaven, we're going to find that there is no reason why he should let us in. Because when we describe our sinfulness and our righteousness before him, we're going to be found lacking and wanting. We have fallen from grace just like Noah. We've all fallen short of the glory of God. And we need to be saved by Christ. And even if you have been saved and you've found yourself having fallen from grace into sin again, know that you can fall back into Christ, back into grace. That's what I want to encourage us to do in the end that we would fall back in to grace Galatians chapter 5 verse 4 says this you are severed from Christ you who would be justified by the law essentially if you were to be judged according to your works to be justified by your works You would be severed from Christ. He goes on, he says, you have fallen away from grace. For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly await for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything. No works or lack of works counts for anything but only faith. Working through love. 
This is why John just describes Jesus like this. And we'll close with this. In John chapter 1, verse 14, that the word became flesh. Jesus became flesh and he dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only son from the father. When we look at the son, we see the father like father, like son. And how is he described? Full of grace and truth. And goes on, it says, for from this fullness, we have received grace upon grace for the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth come through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at his father's side. Jesus has made him known. We've all fallen from grace but thanks be to God who sent his one and only son Jesus who lived a perfect sinless life for those of us who have fallen from grace we can fall back into grace through repentance of sin and faith in Jesus Christ that his death and his resurrection accomplished something for us that we couldn't do on our own his response to sin was leaving heaven and coming to earth His response to sin was a way to cover your sins, to cleanse you of your sins, to be washed of your sins. So repent, believe, follow Christ, go and sin no more. Respond to sin with grace and truth. In a spirit of gentleness, seeking to restore in hopes of honoring and glorifying the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, I pray that we would be in awe of your grace in Jesus Christ this morning. Having seen ourselves likely much like Noah or much like Ham, having fallen from grace. Thanks be to God, you were better than Shem and Japheth. You you lived a perfect and sinless life and yet... You took our sin and our shame, our nakedness upon yourself and died and rose from the dead. And we honor you, we praise you, we thank you. Jesus, it's our hope to be a light like you are a light for the world, that we would go and respond to our own sin and to the sin of others rightly graciously, truthfully, hoping to lead others to honor and glorify you, to repent of their sins and believe upon the name of Jesus and be saved themselves. God, help us fight well in this life so that we don't find ourselves being described at the end of our life like Noah. And yet, if we do, may we fall back into grace and bless the Lord again like Noah did to get back up again and to bless the Lord again God we thank you that you did not leave us where we were at but you made a way of salvation just like you did for Noah just like you did even for all of Noah's sons we thank you that we too are included to be your sons and daughters 
that we might dwell in the house of the better Shem, Christ Jesus himself. We ask and pray in Jesus' name.